short episode on telescope focal ratio and picking telescopes on episode 346 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking at the night sky. And this podcast is for anybody else who likes going out under the stars. We got a couple Patreon supporters to thank uh, this morning, Shane. So maybe we should just start there. Yeah, we do. Thank you, Felipe and Kent. You, those two are our newest Patreon supporters. So we always appreciate it. And we always like to say thanks to all of our Patreon supporters. Um, it helps keep the show going. So thank you. Thanks so much. And did you get any observing or observations in or any recent new astronomical purchases since, I guess it's been a couple of weeks since we recorded. The last time we recorded was on whenever it was yeah, two weeks ago. Something yeah, like it's that. been a little while. Um, lots of solar observing. There's, um, I saw an article. I didn't actually read it. I just saw the headline that um, I believe there's a record number of sunspots, or maybe it's just through this uh, current uh, solar cycle. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but the solar activity is just outstanding. So, uh, you know, I think I said this the last time we recorded, just, you know, if you have the means to do any solar observing, you really should, because there's a lot going on there. So I've been getting out uh, quite a few times during the day. Um, and, you know, sort of the usual story, lots of prominences, lots of surface detail. It's always changing and evolving and uh, a lot of fun. Um, regarding purchases, I, I was not in the market for anything at all, but uh, I... I stumbled across an article on Astromart. Um, there's a person that had some Zeiss Abbey orthos and uh, I don't, I think, I think the person might've been open to selling, but was looking more for trades and was interested in some TMB super monocentrics or uh, the Pentax SMC orthos. Mm. So um, the focal ratio or the focal lengths that he had for the Zeiss Abbey orthos were the four millimeter six and 16. Mm. Um, so the 16 is the one that really was of interest to me. That one is of great interest to me. <laughs> yeah. So I, I sent him an email and I said, Hey, um, I'm very interested in the 16. Um, one of the Pentex SMC orthos he was looking for is the nine millimeter. I happen to have two sets of these because of bino viewing. So I thought, I'm okay to give up the nine uh, millimeter uh, in exchange. I, I have two eight millimeter TMB super monos. So I'm kind of covered off really from a bino viewing perspective. Um, so anyway, I sent him the email um, and he said, oh, sorry, somebody already spoke for the 16 millimeter. So no worries. I thought, whatever, uh, just, I will keep moving in the direction I'm moving. Um, and then a couple of days later, uh, this person emailed me and said, the, 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 the deal that he was working uh, for the 16 millimeter fell through. Was I still interested? So I said, absolutely. Mm. So I, I sent him the uh, Pentex SMC ortho uh, and a little bit of cash. And then the Zeiss uh, 16 millimeter is on its way and, and it's arriving tomorrow. Um, oh. So very excited for that. And uh the, I, I've always been super curious about looking through a Zeiss Abbey ortho. I've never done that. Mm -hmm. um, so very interested. Um, the, the, the kind of maybe if there's a downside to this is it, it, I don't really have another minimal glass eyepiece at 16 millimeters to compare it to. Um, the Zeiss or sorry, the TMB super monos, the closest I have would be the 18 millimeter. Um, and then the Pentex SMC ortho goes from 12 to 18 and that's kind of it in my collection for the little, like the, 
the, the simple gloss eyepieces. So mm-hmm. won't be able to do a direct comparison, but um, regardless, I, I can't wait to look through it. It's the uh, the Zeiss Abbey Ortho first series, uh, the ones, not the twos. So okay. there is a little bit of a difference there. Um, the ones have a slightly wider field of view. Okay. The, the twos slightly less, but apparently that's because the ones uh, didn't perform as well in telescopes that were fast, like F5 and faster. Okay. But you've got an F8, so. Yeah. I'm not too worried about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, anyway, the ones get very good reviews as do the twos They're You know, I don't think you're going to want for another eyepiece if you're, uh, you know, if you have a collection of Zeiss Abbey orthos. So what's the field of view then? Uh, 45 or something like that, right around in that range, plus or minus one or two degrees, Uh, typical ortho field of view. Yeah. Okay. I'll be, I'd love to look through that sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll bring it to grasslands. We'll be there. I think at the same time here, July 15th. So in the West block, um, I'll certainly have it there. Cool. Yeah, how, about, how about you? I know you've got some uh, building news and I don't oh. know if you bought anything or if that's been all of your attention. Oh, that's been all the attention. Yeah. This, this, uh, observatory building. Yeah. It's taken up a lot of time and, uh, contemplation. <laughs> so, well, it's yeah. been fascinating to see the pictures, um, you know, as it's, you know, being developed here with floors yeah. and walls and it's yeah. really starting to look like a, a building. Yeah, floors and uh, we put post in. A little bit concerned about there's a little bit of vibration in the post, but I won't really be able to check it until we get a roof on it. Won't be getting a roof on it until probably end of next week, and then we're going to start on uh, getting the the post adapted for the mount and all that kind of stuff. So there's a there's a few steps there. I'm a, a little nervous. It might be okay, but. Um, Anyway, might have to do some jigging to to really get it uh, stable, just because of a couple uh, things that sort of played out, and then the gantry work, the the part, sort of like the scaffolding part that the roll off rolls onto. Um, yeah, that's about two thirds done, so should be finished that next week for sure. And then yeah, it'll be uh, like windows and doors and stuff like that. So put a little drop down on it, just a very small one so that I can think if I, if I can work out the height of the telescope correctly, and it depends on a few things I set up in there already one night and I could get uh, Messier seven, I could get down to about negative 36 degrees declination from inside the observatory with the flap roll downs or flip down or however it's going to work. And then, uh, yeah, so fingers crossed that uh, that works, but I might in the end up having to lose another five or six degrees just uh, for the sake of uh, future upgradability and a little bit more stability and stuff like that. So kind of kind of playing there. So in that light, I'm going to actually be chatting with uh, Mark Radici later on today. He's sending me some photos. He's just sending me some right now on taking some measurements for me because if I get another scope, probably be like a used C11 like he went with. I have the same mount as him. And so it's going to have, uh, uh, I would expect uh, virtually the identical measurements as his. So uh, I just want to figure out how high he went and how much space he's left between the top of his scope and his uh his roll off roof so that uh i make sure that uh i can get the roof off the darn thing when i I need to yeah yeah that's important well that's great i uh i'm excited to see this thing get to completion and you know it'll be a dream i think once you start using it 
yeah, hopefully, yeah. There's there's a few things. Some of the stuff is working working out really well, and some of it is, like I said, a bit of a question mark, some uncertainty. So one of them is is that it can be very hot here, <laughs> to say the least, and mm-hmm. that that hillside is a desert. I mean, it's it's a, a microclimate ish, maybe not even a microclimate. It is a hillside covered in in cactus, and it's uh, very hot there. So it can be a couple degrees warmer up there, even than where I'm sitting. And because of that, it had to be designed around airflow. And that part is, we worked that out, that part's been built and the airflow is, is working perfectly. So I think we can keep it cool. Um, that was like one of the main design principles, but in doing so we had to kind of hang it a bit over the hillside so that the air would flow around it. And that meant that the, the post had to be a little bit higher. And then we have to we had to go with a slightly longer post in order to make sure that we had enough room and then we're going to have to cut it down. So I think once we cut it down and I put some weight on it, hopefully that kind of takes out the little bit of vibration, but I don't know if it would have much more vibration than um, like my tripod would anyway. I was just hoping to have a little bit more stability than what my tripod uh, currently does. But uh, yeah, we'll just have to see. I mean, just have to see how, how it plays out in the end. Yeah, right on. Uh, Mark actually wrote, um, a a little bit of email, actually a little bit on solar observing. He wrote, uh, I hope this message finds you well, a belated happy candidate to you both. Um, and he said, I enjoyed listening to your recent podcast about solar observing with the long summer days here in Southern England. My scope, a lens 60 millimeter has been getting a lot of use. If I'm working from home, I can have the scope set up with the camera, a cable reaching into my observatory warm room that I use for an office. In fact, while I'm solar observing, it really should be the cool room as I'm avoiding baking in the sun. Uh, I can then make my calls, write my reports and attend meetings all while watching solar activity. I try and make a whole disk image when the clouds allow. And on rare occasions, the sky is completely clear. I made some time lapses showing material flowing along the energy lines in the prominences. Absolutely amazing when you play back images uh, in the video. And he sent us a, a couple links uh, that are through to his Refreshing Views uh, YouTube channel. Did you get a chance to take a look at these? These things are fantastic. Yeah, yeah, they're incredible. Uh, thanks for sending those, Mark. Um, and, and really nice work. It's it just does such a great job to show what you can see with hydrogen alpha. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thanks for the note, Mark. Uh, appreciate it. And I am actually going to talk with Mark in about an hour and a half because he's helping me do some measuring and finagling for, uh, for my observatory because I have the same mount that Mark has and I may uh, upgrade telescopes in, in the future and just want to make sure if I do, I'll have enough room. Uh, now for our chat on focal ratio, we had an email from Jesse on selecting a telescope and in particular selecting a telescope with a focus around focal ratio. So first, maybe we should just say uh, what focal ratio uh, is exactly and and how it's determined, Shane. It's a fairly simple calculation, I think. Yeah. So you take your telescope aperture. Um and you divide it by the um uh, uh sorry i'm i'm got that backwards you take the focal length and you divide it by the aperture to get your focal ratio yeah yeah and then that's just like expressed as a singular digit so it's not like one 
colon eight or one over eight or anything like that. If you have a hundred millimeter telescope and it's an 800 millimeter focal length, like Shane's scope, then you divide the 800 by the 100 and that gives you eight or expressed as a focal ratio, they might say half eight or whatever. So with that in mind, Shane, maybe I'll just read the uh, first part or did, may, I just read an email. Maybe you can read the first yeah, part sure. and then we can, yeah. So hello, Chris and Shane, uh, bear with me as this is going to be a pretty long email, which contains two main questions, uh, one to do with focal ratio in visual astronomy and the other to do with the contrast difference while using refractors. Um, I've been listening to your podcast for about one year now, and I haven't listened to every episode. I've gone through most of them. Uh, I have been interested in space for as long as I can remember. And at the end of 2021, I developed an interest in astrophotography after stumbling across uh, Nico Carver of Nebula Photos on YouTube. I began by imaging the moon with a point and shoot camera and soon developed the bug. Now I have a fancy go-to mount, Newtonian telescope, auto guider, and lots of shiny toys. Uh, well, recently I developed a strong interest in visual astronomy and enjoy sketching at the eyepiece. Most of the time I use my trusty Orion short tube 80 refractor on a cheap alt as mount because I'm too lazy to disassemble the imaging rig and had the thought in my head that I would like to image and observe in the same night, but have recently come to realize that I don't like fighting the computers and electronics and then observing at the same time. It is just simply too much for me to think about. On that note, I've been thinking about uh, buying a new telescope uh, that I would use for visual use only, and I'm trying to understand some things. Yeah, so he's looking for uh, a new scope and goes on to ask uh, a few questions about that. So one is, uh, he says that in, and the reason why I wanted you to read that first, but I want to read this part is I'm not an astrophotographer. So he says in astrophotography, you want the fastest optics you can get that are well corrected. So in focal ratio, Shane, what is fast versus slow? Like, like what is, what does this, this mean here? Well, yeah. So fast would be like a real short focal length. Slow, uh, would be a long focal length. Um, now with telescopes, uh, for visual observing, uh, a fast, at least in my opinion, a fast telescope is probably anything under F six. Yeah. Um, now I would consider sort of F6 to maybe F8 or 9 to be medium, and then probably anything, uh, you know, higher than an F9 to probably be a slower focal ratio. Yeah, that sounds about fair. Yeah. He goes on to say, uh, but while doing my research for visual telescopes, I am reading from people that F ratio does not matter almost at all. And that what I want is the telescope with the larger largest aperture. I admit that I have four telescopes already and should probably do some side-by-side -side comparisons as they are of different optical designs. I will still do that testing before buying anything, setting them all at the same time, looking at the same object or objects. But I would like to hear your input on whether focal ratio makes much of a difference for visual use. So it's sort of an, an interesting question, Shane. I mm -hmm. thought you had a pretty good reply and uh, maybe just if you can sort of share your thoughts on that to start. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a few factors here with focal ratio and uh, vis visual usage. Um, 
I, I can't remember exactly what order I went in. So if I miss something here, Chris, just, just throw it, throw it into the conversation. But um, typically with a, a longer focal length, um, you know, you're going to have the opportunity to use more magnification. Um, magnification formula is focal length of your telescope divided by the focal length of your eyepiece. So mm -hmm. the longer your telescope focal length, the higher your magnification will be, or at least your potential will be um, on that telescope. Mm -hmm. So planetary observers tend to favor longer focal lengths because on the planets, you can use as much magnification as the atmosphere will allow usually. And um, longer focal lengths just help you do that. So mm -hmm. that's uh, one benefit of a, a longer focal length. Um, maybe another benefit is that it's a little easier on eyepieces. Um, some eyepieces are not corrected for fast optics and fast optics put a lot of, I would call it sort of stress, uh, on an eyepiece. Mm -hmm. Um, and what that means is, you know, some eyepieces in fast telescopes will show aberrations, particularly towards the edge of the field of view. Longer telescopes are just more forgiving. The eyepieces uh, will work better because the light cone isn't as sharp going into them. Mm -hmm. um, so that's uh, another advantage of the longer focal lengths. Something I didn't mention in the email that just came to mind is depth of focus. Some people talk about um, mm. with longer focal lengths, you don't really even need a fine focus uh, a, you know, a wheel on your focuser because the depth of focus is quite large and it allows you to just fine tune or dial in the perfect focus. Um, so that one's a little bit more controversial, I'd say. Some people agree, some people don't. Mm -hmm. But um, moving on to maybe faster optics uh, or shorter focal lengths, um, a couple advantages. Uh, the one or the first one is uh, maybe mounting. You know, a shorter telescope is just easier to mount. You have a shorter moment arm, so it's less subject to vibration and, and you don't need as robust of a mount. Um, the other though is, is for wide field use. Uh, mm -hmm. If you want wider field of views, you go with shorter focal lengths. And that's probably one of the biggest benefits, I guess, of uh, a fast telescope. Did I miss anything, Chris, or did you have anything else that you wanted to add? No, I, I don't think so. Uh, do you want to read part three there and then? Sure. So, yeah, now on to the refractories question. Uh, <laughs> the first question was actually spurred by this. I've been thinking about replacing my 90 millimeter F10 Acromat with 120 millimeter F8.3 Acromat. And someone mentioned to me that I should also look at some of the 120 F5 Acromats out there as they have the same light grasp. Uh, I hear these are both good instruments and chromatic aberration does not bother me for visual use as I'm usually looking at galaxies or nebulae. Uh, this line of thinking came after I realized that I simply do not have room to house an 8-inch Dobsonian, but the refractor could be stored in the same spot as the 90 millimeter if I sell that one. Uh, I've also heard that refractors have superior contrast, which I believe I have experienced for myself while using my Orion ST80 uh, to view the Andromeda galaxy and being able to see some dust lanes while I was unable to do this with my 130 millimeter Newtonian. However, that newt has a huge secondary mirror because it is designed for imaging, not visual use. So that could also have a hand in that, in that as well uh, as being on different nights. So uh, the seeing may have been different. Uh, to make this question shorter, could you give your opinions on the contrast benefits of a, a refractor versus a reflector? 
And for the sake of argument, if I were to have a 120 millimeter F5 refractor and compare that to my 130 millimeter F5 Newtonian, would I notice much of a difference? Thanks in advance. If you even take the time to read all, of <laughs> which which we both did, and we both yeah. replied. Yeah, yeah. I, I think this is a very good email, and mm -hmm. uh, lots of really great questions here. And I've sort of been down the same path myself. So there's there's a few telescopes in play here. Uh, ST80, which is roughly a three inch f5 acromat, meaning that it doesn't focus all colors to the same point. So it means that if you uh, look at the moon, you're going to see a bit of a uh, color fringe might be purple or a little bit green. My, my ST80 has a, has a green one. My first one had a violet one. And like on Jupiter, we'll have a big violet halo. Um, but on deep sky, you're unlikely to, to notice uh, that color fringing. Um, the other scope that he has in hand is a 90 millimeter F10, which uh, for, for lack of a better word, while achromatic, it is um, going to not have, or it's not going to have as much of this secondary spectrum color because it has a much longer uh, focal ratio. And so the focal ratio on a refractor really comes into play with how much of the secondary color you'll get with an acromat. And the best way to visualize this is look up what's called, a, I think it's called a Conradery chart or Conradi chart. It's one or the other, and it will, it will detail it out. But um, this is another ratio just to confuse things. And what you do here is you simply take your aperture and divide it by your um, or your focal ratio and you divide it by your aperture that is. So I think the way it works is you would you would divide, um, for example, with the SD80 five by three, and that's gonna give you like 1.66 for your uh, CR number. And so that gives you an idea of how much color. If, if the number for the new scope is gonna be below that, it's gonna have much more secondary color. And if the number is higher than that, it should theoretically have uh, less color. So for example, with the um, 90 millimeter F10, that's going to have a CR number closer to around about three or so versus the ST80, which is going to have like about 1.66 or about uh, roughly uh, twice the color-ish. Uh, of course, things will vary and everybody's eyes are different. So in comparison, in comparing those two instruments, uh, Jesse should be able to get a pretty good idea of uh, of how secondary color is impacted by telescope focal ratio. Now, the two telescopes that he mentioned, um, uh, 120 millimeter, roughly a five inch or 4.7 inch F5 and 120 millimeter, 120 millimeter F8.3, um, the 120 millimeter F8.3 has virtually the same CR number or secondary spectrum rating as an ST80, but the 4.7 inch or 120 millimeter F5, uh, it's going to be much higher. So that's basically going to have a one or it's going to have, you know, um, I think like 66% or something like that, more secondary color than the, uh, the original scope. So if you're fine with the ST80 and you're saying you don't mind secondary color um, and using mostly low power, then that can be fine. And Everybody has a different uh, tolerance to that, but I'm just curious, Shane, what are your thoughts on uh, secondary color and how, how you perceive it and, and, and maybe the impacts that you might 
uh, want to draw attention to for for this comparison? Well, yeah. So it it for me it often shows up as like a yellow fringe uh, when I've when I've noticed it. Um, it usually doesn't bother me uh, because it's typically on the outside of the object. So if I'm looking at the moon, it you know mm-hmm. sort of encases the the outer limb of them of the moon and. You know, my approach is just to look at the craters, you know, not kind of at the edge, and I'm usually okay. Um, so for me, it, it's not a, a huge uh, detractor, but, you know, I'll also be candid and say I haven't really done a ton of planetary observing with shorter focal length acromats. Mm-hmm. Uh, the acromats that I have um, are all what we would call quite slow. Like one is, yeah. uh, I think, close to F17, my <laughs> my 76 millimeter uh uh, so 76 millimeter aperture, uh, Tasco with a yeah. 1200 millimeter focal length. So it's quite long. Yeah. Uh, my other one is my Zeiss, uh, telemeter. It's 63 millimeters or 64 millimeter aperture with a focal length of around 800. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, it's, it's in, it's a slow telescope. So it really minimizes the amount of, uh, uh chromatic aberration that you see. And they're not all like if everything was created equal, it would be sort of an easier question to answer. But a mass-produced achromatic telescope with lenses in a plastic cell is is going to perform very different than um, one of these sort of vintage, uh, smaller, very long focal ratio instruments with Japanese optics um, in maybe. Uh, cells that you can align like you have or i remember i was at a star party once and i was observing with ron ravenberg and he had a four inch like an f12 or an f15 or something like that and even though we could we were looking at jupiter and we could see the secondary color for sure it had this um violet halo to it a bit but but the image was absolutely stunningly crisp and sure, you could see the secondary color. It was it was absolutely apparent, but we could use very high power. It had very crisp optics. And that's kind of one of my other points with, uh, with some of these f- faster, more affordable instruments is that you just might not be able to use as much power. So for example, in my SD80s, um, and I had two uh, during the pandemic, uh, one I gifted to my nephews and one I still have. And I did play around quite a bit with how much power they would hold. And, you know, once you got more than about um, 1x per millimeter, about 80, 80 power, things got really soft, regardless of whether I was looking at a planet or a deep sky object. Sometimes I think that's something that does get lost in the mix is that it's not just the secondary color um, and that can cause a reduction in contrast although again everybody is a little bit different but uh, also um, if the optics aren't uh, really well made and it is very difficult to make very fast optics anyway it's even more difficult to make really fast refractor optics then you're going to uh, have a challenge with how sharp things appear so for me personally Shane like you know, I set up, I have reasonably fast apochromatic telescopes. I, I was using my F6 uh, five inch the other night as I was sort of trying to do some testing in, in the observatory that's getting built. And with with that instrument, I'm pretty comfortable to go up to like 180 power. Um, 
So basically, I'm, I'm you know, 1.5 times my aperture in millimeters uh, is, is pretty comfortable for that telescope. And I like to use that. Like if I'm looking at a globular cluster or something, uh, even though it's not something that, that would show secondary color, that that telescope will do it. And I enjoy using uh, those higher powers uh, for looking at planetary nebulae or uh, anything of that uh, description. Now for large wide field objects, again, I, I do find a benefit in, uh, in the higher quality optics because um, it's also difficult to make inexpensive acromats with a flat field. And that's one thing I noticed with my inexpensive acromats that I've recently had and, and ones that I've looked through at star parties is that there's a lot more, for whatever reason, uh, field curvature or other uh, optical errors that that seem to creep in and uh, requiring, um, you know, smaller field uh, optics to be used, plossils maybe versus um, naglers and, and stuff like that, because the, they're just going to show that. I noticed that with my 80 millimeter F5 is that I, I just can't use as wide optics because they do get really, really soft on the edges versus with like my Takahashi F5.9, which really isn't that different from an 80 millimeter F5. As far as focal uh, length goes, it's only uh, 40 45 millimeters difference, uh, I can get, you know, beautifully sharp to the edge in the 60 millimeter Takahashi, but in a, uh, an F5, uh, my F5 Acromat that I paid $30 for, uh, no surprise that, that you're just not getting that sharpness. So, so Shane, for me anyway, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of trade-offs when, uh, when one is picking, uh, like these particular instruments anyway. For sure. And it really it really comes down to personal preference and how your eyes work and a little bit of what you like to observe as well uh for me i i prefer a, a bit of a mid-range focal length uh to give me as crisp a view as possible to the edge so uh as such you know a lot of my telescopes are in that f7 to f9 range mm -hmm. he also mentioned 130 millimeter f5 mm -hmm. and that's a great comparison in fact i've compared my 125 millimeter refractor to the 130 millimeter F5. And my, my friend Tim had one that he had heavily modified to like perfection to get that 130 millimeter as, as good as it could possibly be. And the, the challenge with that size of a reflector is that it, it works great. You can get the wide field of views. I, in fact, I almost would prefer that over an acromat in in these kind of sizes with the exception that you have to have a pretty decent sized secondary and i think jesse mentioned that as well and in order just to get enough of a light cone uh to use reasonably wide field eyepieces whether it's a 32 millimeter one and a quarter plus or you're trying to use some sort of uh, two inch uh, eyepiece in there, just just because of the nature of eyepieces, not necessarily the telescope. The the ratio of the size of that secondary has to be pretty big versus the uh, the mirror itself. If you go up to like a six inch f five, you'll actually find that the the secondary size only goes up like a microscopic amount. I might even use the same secondary mirrors in a in a standard six inch f five uh, that they would for a five inch. And uh, that would be my 
my recommendation would be to try to find uh, something in in that realm. And I think they're even making lots of these uh, six inch or 150 millimeter F6s in some sort of visual configuration these days. And and that that could be a pretty good uh, alternative as well, because then you have a telescope that uh, uh, should be able to both look at planets and and handle wide field. And I think you'd be into that same sort of level of light grasp as the uh, as the refractors in in that case but uh, yeah i've run mine against a 130 millimeter f5 reflector and that the difference is quite apparent the 100 millimeter or 130 millimeter f5 will look um more or less it will give you the light grasp of about a 90 or a 95 millimeter uh refractor so the difference is is apparent it's not like world changing but it it is quite apparent but i think if you went to like an f6 uh, 150 millimeter, then uh, that comparison is going to be pretty hair splitting. Uh, not sure if you have any thoughts on that one, Shane. Totally agree. Yeah. Um, definitely notice a difference between the 130 and, and the 120. Um, yeah. But uh, also to your point, it's not going to necessarily be, you know, uh, changing your life. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. you'll, you'll see some fainter things. Uh, some faint things that maybe are a challenge in the 130 will be very easy in the 120. Yeah. Um, where you'll probably notice it more is on uh, deep sky objects, you know, galaxies, yeah. some uh, globular clusters and uh, some nebulae too. Yeah. So what, what are your thoughts on a recommendation here for Jesse or for people that are sort of uh, uh, making this, this kind of comparison? Like personally, I, I want to have more power than what, these telescopes could go. He's somebody who's already owned a lot of telescopes. Personally, my recommendation would be not to get too hung up on um, buying uh, a, a particular telescope at a particular price. And what I mean by that is uh, maybe either A, um, if, give this some serious thought and consideration. I think he's owned four or five instruments already. And my recommendation would be to either maybe a save up a little bit more money and explore some alternatives um, in the new market, or uh, or b uh, start looking and seeing what's available on the used market because there's uh, there's so many wonderful instruments out there from years gone by, especially with the advent of astrophotography. A lot of people uh, simply dump their their old amazing equipment. But uh, yeah, I didn't know what your your thoughts were, Shane. Yeah, that's, that's sound advice for sure. Um, I certainly don't mind the, the 120, uh, F 8.3. I don't think I would do the F five. Again, I mentioned earlier, I, I do prefer a little bit of a, a slower optic to increase yeah. the, um, quality of the view. And, you know, the, one of the key things here, and we've already mentioned this a few times is it really depends, <clears throat> excuse me, on the individual. And at the end of the day, the, the best way to find out is just to experiment. Um, you know, if you can find some other telescopes, like what you're considering, uh, if you can find somebody that has them and, and look through them just to see if they'll meet your needs, uh, that's uh, a good way to go as well. But, um, you know, I, I don't think there's really a wrong choice here. If you try something and you don't like it, you can sell it or, or you know, trade it and, and move on and try something else. One of the uh, challenges that I found with these uh, lesser expensive models, and there's nothing wrong with them. They're, they're totally fine. You just need to be aware of what you're getting into. And I guess like if it was a brand new person who was just buying a first telescope, my advice would be different than somebody like Jesse who has 
already owned four or five instruments and has done astrophotography and has done sounds like a significant amount of visual observing as well. So for me, like this is a very particular answer for a very particular person, because I feel like, and and just explore this, Jesse, and and I may not have said this in my email back to you, but uh, just think about um, what you're looking for with the new telescope, because a lot of the time we are looking to improve some other things. And even though at the present time, you might be satisfied with those lower power views, or you're not observing planets as much. You're, you're, you could just end up owning another instrument. And there are some pretty good acromats that are being produced that are kind of sort of like in this, this sort of weird kind of mid-tier. I'm really curious about them. I, I might even get curious, curious enough to buy one at some point. Uh, but Shane, like you and I have talked about some of these, they're not quite semi uh, apochromatic, but they're kind of well-tuned acromats that aren't quite as fast as like F5, but I think there's some like six inch F5.9, six inch F6.5 mm-hmm. um, that that have been, um, I guess, engineered to handle the large wide field eyepieces that, that you're going to want to stick in those instruments. They have larger, more robust focusers. They have a slightly longer focal ratio. So you know, with some filtering and um, with the the slightly more expensive coatings they're putting on these instruments, slightly better cells, uh, the, the telescopes, you know, and really not having experimented with them too much myself, uh, you're probably just buying a, a telescope that's going to have a little bit more longevity. The, the issue becomes with the lesser expensive scopes once you're further along, like Jesse is, that uh, you want to make sure what you're buying is going to last you for for a little while. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good advice. All right, that's that's sort of my two bits, and it is something I've personally uh, thought quite a quite a bit about. Uh, in fact, I've I've almost bought like used. You know, I think for me, if if I was going to do it, I would just go all in. Like, if you're going to get one of these acromats that's fast, just go and. Lots of people buy the six inch version that's F5. I would just go right to that because then you're just getting the biggest sort of inexpensive acromat and you've you've got something that can handle the wide field and then maybe you can tweak it and go with that or maybe uh, save up a few pennies and look at some of these newer uh, designs with more robust focusers that have uh, slightly better uh, correction and slightly better coatings uh, to maybe get those, those higher powers like I would want um, or save up a few bucks and start exploring the used market. There's, there's so many great older scopes that are out there, Shane. Uh, yeah. I'm a huge fan of, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, used gear because it's already depreciated. It's one of the best ways to try uh, something new uh, because if you don't like it again, you can sell it, but you're probably not losing any money. So it's a, it's a really good way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sort of a, a neat thing. If you were going to buy another telescope, Shane, what would, what would you buy or, or are you good? Um, I've, st- I've still got like aperture fever in the back of my mind. <laughs> um, my biggest telescope right now is 102 millimeters. So, you know, I've, I've been kicking around 150 meter, 150 millimeter, uh, apochromat for a while now. So that's a, a possibility. Yeah. Um, there's some of the larger binoscopes that are kind of interesting. 
Um, and then there's a, a little bit of me that says, uh, you know, something like an 18 to 20 inch, uh, fast reflector, uh, would be great. Yeah. <laughs> you know, with all of the telescope builders that we've had on the show lately, building these ultra fast, ultra big daubs, uh, I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of loving that too. So I, I'm not doing anything like imminently, uh, but I'm, I'm, you know, mulling some, some op- or some options in my brain. How about you? I, I am really and, and remain very happy with my uh, five-inch apochromatic F6. That That is such, uh, for me anyway, in my observing style, it's such a like keyhole instrument that I do find myself still using it quite a bit for any kind of deep sky observing. Uh, still with my Takahashi 100 millimeter, um, if, if the planets are up and it's a really good night, that's the instrument that gets used for that. In, in the observatory, one thing I wouldn't mind doing just to have a little bit more aperture and tracking and a few other uh, things of that nature would be a uh, used uh, Celestron C11. Um, like uh, I know a few people that have uh, purchased that and put it on the mount that I have uh, with the refractor on the other side because you can dual mount it. And uh, that might be something I do in the future. And then I, I think I would like to get something like a uh, somewhere like a 16 inch in in the future and sort of as part of the design of the observatory it is it is designed so that i can uh store a larger instrument up to a a certain size i I think a 16 inch should fit 18 inch might be tight um because as you know that hilltop is reasonably flat i designed it so that the door is right there and it's uh, hardly much of a step out onto the uh flat hilltop so i should be able to yeah, keep a big scope in the corner there, a reasonably sized telescope in the corner there, and and wheel it out uh, onto the uh, on, onto the hilltop. Uh, that seems like a bit of a a stretch at this point, considering where I am. But with the observatory, but we'll see. Yeah, yeah, cool. All right. Anything else to add to the show? No, that's it, Chris. All right. Well, thanks, Shane. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please subscribe and do us a favor and share the show with other stargazers you know. And you can always reach us with your show ideas, observations, and questions to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.